0: the information provided in this podcast and on this website is intended for a Canadian audience it is for informational purposes only and does not create a physician-patient relationship it is not to be used as professional medical advice diagnosis treatment or care nor is it intended to be used as a substitute anyone with any questions regarding medical conditions issues, or problems should seek the advice of a physician. Welcome to episode 8 of Peep the Process, a sport and exercise medicine podcast for Canadian student athletes.
1: Hey Emma, do you like baseball?
0: I have to tell you, growing up I wasn't such a big fan, but after I started dating a baseball player, I have definitely gotten more into it over the past couple of years.
1: So today's guest Ryan Croton will be a real treat for anyone interested in baseball and for anyone who has stepped into a gym to train. He happens to be my nephew and he grew up in Whitby, Ontario.
0: Right now he is the director of performance integration with the Los Angeles Angels of the MLB. A certified strength and conditioning specialist, and a registered strength and conditioning coach. He also has his interdisciplinary PhD in biomechanics and exercise physiology. And James, you thought Ryan would be too busy to appear as our podcast guest. He has been relocated by his Major League Baseball team, the LA Angels, to a hotel in Southern California until October. But he did listen to our first few podcast episodes, and he was so complimentary with our podcast content and length.
1: So Ryan, exceedingly organized as usual, suggested we do an episode on high performance training for overhead athletes. He said the information would be useful for both student athletes and their coaches. He wants to communicate current training concepts that hinge on evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence through several topics.
0: So today, Ryan will speak about injury prevention, focusing upon throwing muscles and function, the importance of isometrics for tendon health, and workload management. Finally, he will address recovery methods, including rhythmic exercise and devices. After all the doctors and rehab professionals we've had on our podcast, it's very refreshing to have a sports scientist who can make things understandable for our student-athlete audience and their coaches.
1: Sure, but he just doesn't talk the talk. He also lifts weights with the players. When Ryan comes back to Canada, he is always being asked to give workshops for young athletes. I know he was on a webinar just a few weeks ago for elite Canadian ball players.
0: Ryan, welcome to Pete the Process, and thank you for making time to be on today.
2: I appreciate it. I'm very happy to be able to speak with your community.
0: So, not all of our listeners are baseball players. Uh, would you be able to explain how a pitcher throws a breaking ball differently from a fastball?
2: Sure. So, in terms of the grip, that's one of the most distinguishing factors from a breaking ball and a fastball. Um, the breaking ball is usually gripped on the seams where the fastball can be, they're on the seams where you can turn the ball down, so meaning you're, Fingers go down, your thumb goes up when you throw the curveball. In a fastball, your fingers are on top of the ball, and there's much more backspin. So the spin is the element that changes between the fastball and the breaking ball.
0: So how does this affect the elbow?
2: Well, when you throw a curveball, your wrist is supinated. And so supinated means palm up. So if you think cup of soup and I turn my palm up, that's the position that you're holding the baseball. And as you deliver the baseball, you have a really violent internal rotation. So your, your thumb turns down when you're releasing the baseball. Um, and so that kind of aggressive movement has been shown to increase load on the elbow. However, I'm a biomechanist and when they've evaluated the force at the elbow, there's been no change. So as far as the breaking ball, you have to be careful in terms of your, um, your age when you start and not to throw it too often because it has the same force as a fastball.
0: Okay, so in regards to injury prevention, how can a student athlete uh, prevent themselves from getting an elbow injury?
2: Yeah, so I just mentioned that we need to be able to manage the workload of using pitches in general. So that's really, really important. And there's a lot of guidelines that are available online. Um, One that has been put out by Baseball USA and a company, uh, it's a medical company called American Sports Medicine Institute. So that's your first defense. The next is to be able to develop full body strength um, because the throwing delivery has to be efficient. And if you have any weaknesses in the delivery, it tends to put more load on on the throwing arm and you need to have an arm care prevention program that targets the rotator cuff which are the muscles that rotate the the shoulder forward and backward and brings it up and down and then also your scapular muscles so your shoulder blade at the back you need to have a program that um, manages uh, the stability of that area and then your forearm so you need elbow stability and when you have all those things in combination you have a better chance of preventing injury.
0: Okay. Can you explain to the student athletes what isometric exercises are and how they can help them?
2: Sure. So isometric exercises, that means that the muscle isn't changing length. So if you think about pushing on a wall, that means that I'm exerting force, but my joints aren't moving outside of a a range that it's already in. And it's really important to stabilize the joints with isometric because you don't need to lift heavy weights, but you need to keep your muscles active for a longer period of time. And what that does is it really strengthens uh, ligaments and tendons, which is much different than weight training or any type of movement that has an extension and flexion or any other joint type of motion that the joints change angle and the muscle change length.
0: Okay, so then, would these exercises vary for athletes from one sport to the other, or would they be kind of similar?
2: Well, you know, the, the exercises, if you're using isometrics, would differ. So for instance, if I'm a basketball player, basketball players have something called patella tendonitis, and that is is essentially the band of tendon that extends your knee, and it gets really inflamed sometimes in basketball, um, which I played and I had. And as far as protecting that particular region, you would have to focus your isometrics of the lower body. Now we do that um, in our training for our players because there is really high running loads, particularly for our position players, but we also train our pitchers the same way. So that's really important as far as um, protecting each region of the body. So there can be sport specific elements and general elements
1: ryan if our listeners just google jumper's knee they'll probably find examples of patellar tendonitis
2: yeah sure yeah
1: everything that i'm
2: speaking about here in this podcast is uh documented somewhere in the internet or through research um there's really nothing magical that i'm talking about here but yeah I think it's important that your young athletes they have an understanding of what injuries occur in sport, and that allows them to figure out how I need to get information to prevent them.
1: Ryan, when it comes to recovery methods, what are the principles student athletes need to know that they may not understand
2: okay this one this one should be really simple, but a lot of people don't do it well, so the big the big four I call it is you need to have adequate sleep, you need to have proper nutrition, you need to be hydrated, and you need to do things for your soft tissue. So when it comes to sleep, most studies show that having more than seven and a half hours to nine hours is ideal for athletes because you get enough sleep cycles to uh, recover the body and have the right hormone release so that you can repair your muscles. When it comes to nutrition you need to have enough calories and enough protein that allows you to actually have building blocks to create muscle uh, tissue and when it comes to hydration hydration is so important to prevent uh, soft tissue injuries because if you think of uh, a meat in uh, f- from uh, a grocery store uh, when it's packaged and then you think about dried meat like beef jerky, you don't want to be beef jerky because it can easily rip. But the secondary uh, benefit of being hydrated is that your muscle cells are larger. And when your muscle cells are larger, more protein goes into your muscle cells, and again helps you grow, and that adds to power, strength, and speed. Um, And the last is soft tissue, and with soft tissue, that could be using things like a foam roller, which is very easy to use, where you're basically reducing the tension in your muscle groups and allowing you to keep a high level of range of motion, which is important for sport performance and loading joints and being able to, again, explode with high power.
1: Ryan, uh, what about rhythmic exercise and devices uh, for recovery?
2: Yeah, so rhythmic exercise is really, really impactful. When athletes, you know, throw or do high-intensity overhead work, even like tennis or volleyball, um, there are some microdamage to to uh, blood vessels and and some to the neurons, which are your, your nerve cells, that can occur. And so, what rhythmic exercise does is it does a few things. It allows the muscles to compress the joint, so it teaches the shoulder. Um, and you're using something like a body blade or or something that wiggles basically uh, and doing different shoulder movements with it. Um, and it, it gets the muscles to be able to learn how to compress the joint and stabilize it. Uh, it brings a lot of blood flow back to the muscle that has been exercised. So again, here we have our nutrition. It's opening up little pathways to get that into the muscle fibers um, and tissues that may have been slightly uh damaged. And um, the other thing that it's impactful for is just general coordination. Um, When it comes to some of these neuromuscular electrical stimulation devices, which is a long word and it just means it's a twitch device, when you use those around your muscle groups, it allows rhythmic contraction without you actually exerting effort. And the rhythmic contraction allows muscles to move. And when muscles move, they pull out fluid from the muscle tissue because we have these vessels called lacteals that don't have valves. And those are the ones that can pull the fluid out of the muscle. And it needs a squeezing action. So if you basically squeeze a pipe and, or or a hose and you release, it sucks up. And so that's what that type of device does to reduce swelling. And it kind of gets you ready for your next day, which is. You know, very key for an overhead athlete.
1: And is it, this at the end of the workout?
2: Yes. Yes. This is typically done at the end of the workout. But some people utilize at least the perturbation as a warm-up, you know, before they're training.
1: Oh, I think you're going to have to explain perturbation.
2: Yo, oh, yes. So, so perturbation. So just think of perturbation as wiggling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rhythmic back and forth, really short actions, the muscle's not moving in too great a range, but you're kind of rhythmically wiggling your uh, shoulder. And if you look up online, body blade exercises, you'll, you'll definitely see what I mean. Um, but we have something called co-contraction. That, that is a big word, but that means that uh, all muscle groups are contracting at the same time. And that's where you get some of the stability features from that device.
1: Ryan, how can student athletes ensure that they're getting good strength and conditioning training and good coaching?
2: Yeah, so when you're going to look for somebody, you definitely want to consult a, a, an exercise professional. Um, you want to see that they have a designation called the CSES. So that's a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And that's something that you require a degree for. And you need to sit a very extensive board exam. And so they'll have the requisite understanding and information uh, to be able to program you appropriately. And so they understand the dosage that you need, uh, the program design being the exercises that are applicable. Um, And, you know, uh, typically these individuals are also very good at teaching sprint mechanics because there's sections on how to uh, um, improve speed. Um, And so when you're looking for somebody, you should be looking for those credentials to get The best delivery of your programming.
1: And is that the same credential in Canada as in the USA?
2: Yes, it's universal. Um, It's actually worldwide now. And for at least Major League Baseball and college sports, it's required. You need to have a CSCS um, because you're obviously handling high level athletes and you need to make really sound decisions. And, um, you know, it's just something that I believe, you know, parents should be looking for when you're choosing somebody. And and typically, these people are going to have an exercise science background. And I feel that they'll be able to really educate the athlete as well, you know, about their bodies.
0: Okay, so Ryan, our next couple of questions are actually coming from a listener who happens to be a baseball player. And they would like to know, how do you program your players workouts during the season when they're required to play every day?
2: Yeah, so you, you have to really understand the schedule of the athletes. So pitchers have a different uh schedule, especially if they're a starter or a relief pitcher, um, than position players, you know. And then within position players, you have to understand are they everyday players? Because even if you have a a, a guy who comes off the bench, you need to make sure that they're trained at a level that if there's an injury, they can insert themselves in the lineup um right away. And so The typical thing is less is more um, because they're playing games. And uh, I know for myself, I put myself through the workouts um, that I do for my players just because I want to be able to understand how taxing this is. And for me, if I can't get through a workout in season in under a half an hour, I've done it wrong, right? The most important thing for our athletes is to be able to have a high level amount of energy for games and if training takes away from that it's counterproductive so that's really important and you know certain things like you know aerobics are really important for starting pitchers but might not be for relievers because they have different uh, workload designations in games so those are some key uh, bits of information uh, about training athletes in baseball in season
0: So how individualized is each player's program?
2: You know, what happens is there's, there's many, we have many training calendars and they have a general specificity to them all. Um, And they cover most of the athletes because it's very hard when you have 300 plus athletes, but within these training calendars, we definitely individualize, you know, some athletes have uh, differing uh, injury histories some of them have, we, we take certain metrics that they can't talk about, but um, we take certain metrics that allow us to understand how to manipulate their training to improve, as I said, strength, speed, and power. And so, you know, th- the combination of that uh, really starts to uh, factor in a really nice customized tailored program that for the strength coach, they don't have to go crazy in making 300 plus athlete uh, programs.
0: Okay. And how do you manage players that don't want to lift heavy or don't believe in the same training principles as you?
2: Uh, It all comes down to education, you know, and knowing your player. Like one of the things that's so important for any coach is you have to understand how to communicate and you have to utilize certain tactics. So for me, I use something called legitimization. And that just means when I talk to athletes, I show them data and I talk to them about why certain metrics we have are important and how you get there. And how they're transferable to baseball performance. Um, there are sometimes you utilize exchange. You know, uh, you you let the athlete know that you want to put some things in in his program, and you let him do some things that he wants to do. Um, and you know, sometimes you have to wait with an athlete, especially at the pro level, if they're very resistant, for them to have poor performance. So, for instance, when their velocity drops, is a really good time to talk to an athlete about their training.
0: Okay. And what aspect of training are you finding um, that most developing baseball players are missing from their programs?
2: Um, I, I think a lot of developing baseball players are, they don't really have a lot of uh, understanding of arm care. You know, how to uh, train, you know, the muscle groups that I was talking about, the shoulder blade stabilizers, the rotator cuff, and the forearm flexors. Um, I think that is something that's really missed. And uh, in young players where, you know, a lot of them, they want to play and they want to lift really heavy. Um, Obviously, they want to be bigger and faster and stronger. But some of these little things that are injury prevention based are incredibly important for their overall health uh, and staying on the field. So I think that can be neglected. Um, I think trunk stability. So being able to focus on core work can sometimes be placed on the side. Um, with greater emphasis on their quads and hamstrings and calves and biceps you know more of the vanity aspect of their training where um, you know they may not be doing the things the right things to keep them on the field
0: okay and what mistakes did you make as a player in your own training programs that you would change if you could do it over again with your current knowledge
2: Oh, man, this is an unbelievable question. I really like this question. <laughs> um, there, are, there is a lot. Uh, I was a, an incessant train, uh, trained athlete. I would, I'm the type of guy that would take myself to the track. Um, I would uh, very routinely, I would, I would work out all year long because I knew I didn't have the genetics. You know, I had uh, a father who was really not athletic, um, and my mother's really short you know, and, uh, I, I really needed to get any edge I possibly could. And so one of the things that I, you know, I would have done in, in at least, uh, strength training is I would have focused on trying to progress myself to lift, um, loads that were, I could capably handle for five to six reps. Um, especially when I was more, uh, skeletally mature and 17, 18 years old, so I could develop a lot more force. Um, I would have also tried to consult an exercise professional at that time. There wasn't a lot of sport performance coaches that I could lean on. A lot of the, what I was doing was self-read as a, as a teenager, um, and reading books and applying what I read to training. And so, um, I didn't really enhance velocity in my training, you know, when I'm, when I'm lifting and I, I was leaving power on the table. um. I did a lot of long distance jogging and that is really counterproductive as far as um, speed. So you gotta think like there are marathon runners and there are sprinters. And when you look at their bodies, they're completely different. Um, And marathon runners also have really small angles between their knees when they split, their knee to knee split when they're running. Opposed to sprinters, you see this very high thigh that is parallel to the ground And you can really confuse the mechanics of sprinting by doing a lot of jogging. And so what I should have done for my aerobic work is chose things that are more loaded, like uh, more intense cycling and rowing and pushing a sled and those kinds of things to get my heart rate rate up, as well as shortening rest periods between uh, sprint bouts. That can also improve aerobic fitness while you're still focusing on speed. So those are some of the, the common mistakes that I made that if, had I had known these things um, and if the research was available, I think I would have been uh, better prepared um, for my athletic career.
0: Okay. So I have a, a, a kind of like a weird question. <laughs> okay. If, if, so if you were going to do sprint training, would you sprint the distance between bases or would you go further or would you go shorter?
2: Great, great question. So baseball has a lot of different elements. So in terms of speed training, I I need to preface, you also have to do agility work that has, you know, elements of sprint, they have to change direction, you have to be able to run curves, you need to run the bases as an athlete. And in my opinion, I think you need to run the bases in the opposite direction, because the legs have to do uh, some some uh, different things mechanically, that creates balance. But when you do short distance sprinting, you're working on acceleration, and that is really the predominant characteristic in baseball, because you're really spending a lot of time running distances less than 30 yards. And typically, a baseball player hits max speed around 33 yards. Now, what's important is in scouting, we look at the 60-yard sprint. And so if athletes aren't running that sprint, it's going to put them at a deficit um, for performance Um, because this is like the first event for position players when they go to a a scout scouting camp, a draft camp. And so you need to have varying distances, um, in your sprint programming. And you also have to be able to have tempo training, um, where you're working on uh, technique and also offloading your, your muscle groups from high speed efforts, because you don't want to overtrain those muscles and potentially have a strain.
0: Okay.
1: So, Ryan, what do you want to say to both the student-athlete and their coaches?
2: Um, I I think what's important for the student-athlete is is to do your own research and uh, really understand yourself as an athlete and what you need. So some athletes are, you know, they are strong athletes, and they really require a huge amount of speed. And then you have some speed athletes that are super fast that lack strength. And so, you know, having a little bit better understanding of your goals as an athlete and what you need to get out of training will allow you to communicate with your coaches, uh, your strength coaches about, you know, what they need. Um, I do believe that you as an athlete should take video of uh, your sport performance because, you know, we talk about strength and conditioning, but I truly think it's strength and coordination as a title because these strength coaches can really help you develop better movement patterns. And so having those conversations with them, saying, you know, I find that I'm not able to hold a hinge position. So I can't, I don't keep myself flexed at the hips through my swing. Um, or if I'm a pitcher, I, my, my lead leg doesn't stay stable. It flexes in when I throw, you need to have those conversations with the strength coach because they're the ones, they can add some of these properties to make you a better athlete all around, not just a bigger, faster, stronger athlete.
0: Okay. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, it was incredible to have you on our podcast.
2: I really appreciate it. And I hope the listeners get a lot about uh, a lot of what I said and uh, apply it to their sport.
0: For sure. To the listeners, join us next week for a very special episode featuring a roundtable discussion with some world-class Canadian Paralympic athletes. They will be joined by Dr. Stephen Macaluso, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist in London, Ontario. They will talk about the postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Instagram at podcast and on Twitter and Facebook at peeptheprocess. Our website can be found at peeptheprocess.buzzsprout.com. This podcast is produced by Emma Jacobs along with Associate Producer Enrica Immaturo. Special thanks to the Department of Family Medicine at the Scarborough Health Network, the Athletic Department at Seneca College, and the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine for their support. See you next time! At this point, we would like to remind you that the information provided in this podcast and on this website is intended for a Canadian audience. It is for informational purposes only and does not create a physician-patient relationship. It is not to be used as professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or care, nor is it intended to be used as a substitute. Anyone with any questions regarding medical conditions, issues or problems should seek the advice of a physician.